Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now welcome back to murder under the midnight sun and welcome to my fourth annual halloween special my apologies for a total lack of episodes this month, but I had a really rough time and didn't even really get to enjoy my favorite month very much. But I definitely wanted to get this out to you guys because it's one of my favorite episodes of the whole year. And I hope you'll agree with me that this year's is particularly excellent with some really great contributions from some wonderful people. This year I asked for friends and fellow podcast hosts to submit a true crime story that took place during Halloween season. Not necessarily on the day itself, but just during the month of October. And was looking for weirder and more creepier crimes. And I got some great contributions. My first contribution comes from my friend, Lisa Cisneros, and she is not a podcast host, but I think after listening to her submission, you'll probably agree with me that she should definitely start a podcast. I was blown away by her very professional sounding speaking voice and recording quality and the depth of the research that she did on this case for my special. Like seriously, I was completely amazed by how much work she put into it. And I hope you guys like it. This is the case of the babes in the woods as researched and written and told by Lisa Cisneros. So sit down. Have a nice hot glass of hot glass of hot chocolate. <laughs> or if you're in the desert like me, have a nice cold beer because it's still like 95 degrees right now. And it was over 100 pretty much every day for the last five months. So I personally am looking forward to slightly cooler winter. 70 would be great. But anyways... Enjoy this first story. Hello, everyone. My name is Lisa Cisneros, and I am thrilled to be contributing to this very special Halloween episode of Murder Under the Midnight Sun. A uh, little bit of background about me. I'm a freelance writer and reporter based in Chicago. Um, I'm also a filmmaker, and I make up one-third of the team at Rhodes Closed Productions with my partners, Danny Rhodes and Teresa Schaefer. But most of all, I am a true crime junkie. Um, 
So, you know, you're going to say, how much of a true crime junkie can you be if up until I started researching for this podcast, I had not heard of the case that we are going to be discussing today. And it's a big one. So, you know what? Shame on me. Um, Also, I am recording this from my bedroom. I'm not a professional. I've never done this before. So throw me a bone, people, and uh, and bear with me. This is a long one, but I'm going to really do my best. Um, also, I live right by O'Hare Airport. I apologize for any background noise. Going to do my best there as well. I've got a kid. i got a dog. You know, whatever's clever. So enough about me. Let's get into what we're covering today. So today, we're going to be talking about what are known as the Babes in the Wood murders, which took place October 9th, 1986, in a big nature reserve, 593-acre forest slash nature reserve called Wild Park in the suburb of Molescombe in Brighton, England. Okay, we got that? All right. The victims in this case are two precious, beautiful little girls, nine-year-old Nicola Fellows and her best friend, nine-year-old Karen Hathaway. Um, both girls, you know, unfortunately, even more unfortunately, they were not only murdered, but they were also sexually assaulted by a total piece of garbage person named Russell Bishop, who was 20 years old at the time he committed these disgusting acts slash murders. So some background, um, Nicola Fellows and Karen Hathaway were, like I said, like longtime best friends. They lived like three houses down from one another, um, in Molescombe and they played together constantly. Um, from my research, the suburb of Molescombe does seem to have a bit of a high crime rate. So I'm assuming having not been there, that it's a bit of a rough area. Um, I did read that like for sure in the eighties, the suburb was notorious for crime and drug abuse. Um, but that it was also a tight knit community of several families just, you know, really trying to do their best. Uh, so Nicola, she lived with her parents, um, her mother, Sue, her father, Barry, and then she had one brother, Jonathan, uh, Karen lived with her parents as well. Um, her mother, Michelle, who was uh, pregnant at the time of Karen's murder, um, her father, Lee and her little sister, Lindsay, um, friends of the girls said that, you know, the girls like to dance, sing, roller skate, um, typical little girl stuff. Um, and by all accounts, if history shows anything, the girls were very much loved by their families. Though Nicola's father, he is something, he's something else, piece of work there. And there are definitely some skeletons in the fellow's family closet, which we will touch on later. We're going to run into a lot of that that we're going to get back to later. Because like I said, this case is hella long, hella confusing, hella long, but we're going to do it. We're going to get there together. So I wasn't able to find out too much about the girls' personalities, um, which is really unfortunate, you know, because you can always kind of find out like everything you need to know about the perpetrator of a crime, but like not the victims who clearly matter more. Um, the little bit that I did find out, uh, Nicola's father described her as very nurturing, um, giving the example that he suffered from epileptic, excuse me, epileptic fits and said that every time he had one, Nicola was always like right by his side when he came to checking on him. Um, but Nicola also, she had some spunk. She was described as a cheeky, a little bit of a mischief maker. You know, Nicola, she didn't really take any shit, right? So um, so then Karen, uh, she's described as very sweet. And I guess you'd say like the more like tame, quieter of the two. And her mother said that, you know, Karen was quite obedient and actually like, you know, she followed instructions and directions. Our villain in this story is pedophile slash murderer Russell Bishop. 
And as I mentioned, Russell Bishop was 20 years old at the time of the crime. Um, it said that, you know, a little bit of background about Russell. It said that he grew up in a respectable family uh, with his mother, Sylvia, his father, Roy, and his four brothers. Um, kind of funny, interesting enough, I don't know, Sylvia, his mom, it turns out she was uh, an award-winning dog trainer, like internationally known dog trainer, uh, but also said to be a little bit of a domineering mother. Um, I could not find any evidence of abuse in Russell's home, though. So just that she was domineering um, and his family stood by him during his trial. And his mother has since publicly declared her love for him despite his crimes, uh, saying that she had lost a baby prior to Russell's birth and that he was the only one of her pregnancies that she had planned. So, you know. Now you know, whatever. Uh, God bless. Anyway, incidentally, oh, here's another thing. Russell's, yeah, Russell's parents, both well-known, but for different reasons. Russell's father was arrested in 1978 for the rape and murder of a woman also in a Brighton park. Um, but he was released from police custody, never formally charged, but he was arrested. So I thought that was a little weird. Um <clears throat> Anyhow, I, I don't think he ever got in trouble again or was suspected of any trouble, but I did think that was interesting. Uh, that case remains unsolved to this day, and it's known as the Beast of Stanmer Park, if you want to look it up, okay? So it's very sad. Um, anyhow, Russell was not very bright. Uh, apparently, he didn't have the best time in school. He had dyslexia and some other struggles, which eventually led him – I mean, it must have been serious because it eventually led him to be sent to a special needs school – called St. Mary's in East Sussex um, when he was 15 years old. That school, incidentally, is still running today. Um, but, yeah, so Russell's sent away there at 15, and he's like, nope, not staying here. Uh-uh. And he runs away from the school, and he hitchhikes back to Brighton. Um, so, you know, now my first instinct was to kind of automatically feel sorry for Russell for, like, a second. That's what I do. I don't know. I was thinking about the challenges he faced in school domineering mother, you know, a lot of pressure. He's like the golden baby, you know, and maybe he was abused at St. Mary's or something like that. You know, I, and I couldn't find any evidence of that, but I thought it because that's where my mind goes. And, you know, maybe that caused him to run away. But no, so I felt bad for like a second and I'm over it now because people struggle with learning difficulties every day and people are abused every day and they don't become women, woman beating or women beating, you know, beaters uh, or pedophiles or murderers. So basically, um, at 15, that's the end of Russell's education. He leaves school. And then when he wasn't working part-time as a roofer, he was, you know, burg burglarizing flats and hot wiring and stealing cars and stuff like that. So he's a petty criminal. He's got a small record. Um, but he is well known in Moleskine, even though he did not live in Moleskine. He lived in nearby Hollingdean, but it's only, it's less than two miles from where Nicola and Karen lived. Uh, also, he did know the girls because he played cricket with Nicola's father and a friend of Russell's, a, a guy by the name of Dougie Judd. Dougie Judd, I like to say it, Dougie Judd. Um, he also rented a room from the fellows in their home. So he sees, you know, he sees Karen and Nicola all the time, right? So according to acquaintances, Russell is a habitual liar. He's making stories up all the time, the bigger the better. And he even went so far as to say that he had been wrongly arrested for a 1984 Brighton hotel bombing, which was later attributed to the IRA, 
Um, but yes, that he was arrested for this bombing when he was not, uh, tried to really like present himself as a man about town, you know, acquaintances said he grew a mustache, he'd erase his car. Um, others said that he suffered from little man syndrome because he was only about five, five, but apparently he did actually do all right with the ladies. He had a string of girlfriends, um, who thought he was super cool, but the reason they thought he was super cool is because most of these girlfriends were high school students. So yeah, I mean, gross, right? He did have a thing for young girls. Now, technically, the age of consent in the UK is 16. So even though he was, you know, gross, he wasn't actually doing anything illegal, like by dating these girls. Um, he did also, however, have a thing for girls who were actual like underage children. Um, so yeah, that's bad. Friends said he used to whistle at girls walking by, kept calling them, and also that he used to stare at little girls on the playgrounds. Um, it's also implied that he encouraged local teens to appear in homemade porno movies, which were then shared among the men in the neighborhood. Um, yeah, that's going to come up later also. So, and now Dougie, Dougie Judd, his friend, uh, he would later say that he had warned both Nicola's and Karen's parents to keep an eye on Russell because of his taste for underage girls. So just checking for recording here because, you know, as I said, I'm new to this. All right, we're back. Um, now, at the time of the murders, Russell had not one, but two steady girlfriends. One was his live-in partner, Jennifer Johnson, who was also the mother of his young son. Yes, he did have a child, and she was pregnant with their second child, so they had another one on the way. Um, his other girlfriend was, I believe, Jennifer. Ooh, I think Jennifer was 19 or 20. I forgot to look. Um, but she was older than his other girlfriend, who was a 16-year-old high school student named Marion Stevenson, who lived around the corner from Karen and Nicola. So the day of the murders, Nicola and Karen, they go to school just like any other day get together after school to play. So play for a little bit. I think they were roller skating. Um, but then both girls returned home. And after they returned home, Russell Bishop made his way over to Nicola's house because he wanted to see his friend Dougie, you know, who's renting a room at Nicola's house. So I don't know if Russell did manage to see Dougie that day, but apparently Nicola told Russell to go away and called his girlfriend a slag, which is another term for slut. Um, for those who don't know, and, you know, I'm not a slut shamer by any stretch, and I would never slut shame someone, but I like to picture Nicola calling Russell's girlfriend a slut because it makes me laugh. Um, anyway, I don't think Russell liked that very much, right? So around 5 p.m., the girls, unfortunately, uh, they decide they want to go out and play just a little bit more. And both of their mothers, you know, they said that was fine, but then they needed to return home soon because you know, dinner was almost ready. And Nicholas said, I'm just going across the road. I won't be long. And it was the last time their mothers would ever see their little baby girls alive. Um, so now a teenage girl who lived on the block would say later that she saw both girls around dinner time and told them to go home, warning them that their parents would be worried. Uh, she also said that she heard at this time uh, Nicola whisper to Karen, come on, let's go over to the park meaning Wild Park. Now, the girls were forbidden to go to the park alone. 
Nicholas' father had even said that he told the girls that a boogeyman lived in the woods to try and keep them out. They're absolutely not allowed to go there alone. And then also remember, like the area at this time is really rough. It's rot with crime. And the park covers almost 600 acres of land. So who knows why, who knows why Nicholas suggested that they go there that day. But they did. So before arriving at the park, though, witnesses would say that they saw both girls around 630 near a police box, which is, um, for those who don't know, it's a phone booth for police to use back in the day before cell phones. Um, but also near the police box was Russell Bishop, who witnesses reported was wearing a light blue top. And that is going to come up a lot. So, well, you know, the girls, they don't show up for dinner. That time is approaching. They're frantic. Mom's frantic. Karen's mother calls the police. A group of about like 200 police and neighbors gets quickly organized and a search party begins. Now, an active participant in this search party was Russell Bishop, of course, because doesn't it always seem like the murderers just like they just jump right into the search and they go to all the candlelit vigils. And then when the people are missing, they're always passing out the flyers and, um, I don't know. They always do that. And it creeps me out after people get caught and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. That person's guilty of murder. And then you see them like in old videos at the person's vigil and stuff. It like gives me the creeps and it makes the hair on my arm stand up. Um, but anyhow, yeah, he jumps in. Oh, but the other thing, right? Like also besides joining the vigils and stuff and the searches, it seems like they can't ever seem to shut up. They can't keep their mouths shut. Right. And this is exactly where Russell first begins to go wrong. And right away, people noticed he's acting strangely. So first off, Russell has a dog, this dog, Misty, this bitty dog that he brings along on a search. And Mr. Stupid Dummy Head Loose Lips starts telling everybody that not only is his dog a specially trained tracking dog, but it's also insured for $17,000. Sure, Russell. So anyhow. The search goes well into the morning of October 10th with no luck finding the girls and, you know, Russell's participating and feigning worry. And, you know, sometime in the early afternoon, the girls, they're finally found in the park by two searchers, um, a man named Matthew Marchant and his friend Kevin Rowland. And the girls are found like deep in the woods in this sort of like natural, almost like a den, like a kind of like a fort. Oh, it's so sad. Oh, it's so hauntingly sad. Poor baby girls said to be ice cold, right? They're ice cold. Nicola is sitting upright against some brush in the den, and Karen is lying down at her side with her head in Nicola's lap. You know, their eyes are closed. They appear to be sweetly sleeping, but there is no mistaking, like, the blood on their clothing and... Of course, they were not sleeping, but dead. So autopsies later would reveal that both girls had been strangled and then sexually assaulted after. But at the time, the uh, pathology, um, it also appeared, according to the pathologist, it, it did appear that Nicola may have been sexually assaulted at an earlier time, like a month or two prior to her murder. So, again, this is something that's going to come up later. Um, but, you know, Nicola Spitfire that she was, uh, she had bruising to her face where Karen did not, uh, indicating that she may have fought back and been beaten into submission. So, 
I don't know. I just, at least, I hope that Nicola, like, mouthy fighter that she was, I hope she at least got some good singers in at Russell before she went. Because, you know, she deserves that at least. So, anyhow, stupid dummy head Russell, he can't help himself, right? So, he hears that the bodies have been found. He hauls ass to the crime scene, like, along with the police, like, the detectives. He's running up there and his dog. And he gets up to the crime scene and he doesn't actually go up to the bodies. Um, he sees the bodies. He sees how they're laid out, but he keeps himself at a far enough distance away um, where he's not going to really notice any details. Right. So this is important to know. He's at a distance with the cops. And um, oh, also to add some icing to this sadist shit cake. Karen's mother would later say that when she, you know, she hears the commotion, she sees people running, she starts running. She sees like the crime scene tape starting to be put up and she sees Russell, right? And she knows Russell and she like longingly looks over to him for an answer about what had happened. And Russell, his face crumples, his teeth got tears. He covers his face. He drops his head down as though sharing in her grief when this poor woman, Michelle, realizes that her baby girl and her baby girl's best friend are dead. Because, you know, Russell's real broken up about it. Right? Piece of shit. So anyway, um, so right away, the police start gathering suspects and they eventually come up with like about nine in total. But Russell sticks out as the main suspect immediately because idiot blabbermouth that he is, he gives police three, not one, not two, three different reasons as to why he is in Moscombe in the first place. Um, One, and also it's like, you don't have to think of elaborate reasons, dude. Like, you're only like a mile and a half away. So, you know, yeah, you might be there, right? So Anyhow, first he says um, that he was there because he was going to steal a car from the University of Sussex. Uh, two, because he'd gone to buy a newspaper, but then realized that he didn't have any money when he got to the shop. And then three, that he was going to visit his girlfriend, Marion, but decided to stop at another, you know, lady's house, bought a bunch of weed, went home to smoke it. Didn't go see Marion. Right. It's like, go home with your excuses, Russell. Go home. You're a murder, Russell. Go home. Anyway, so he also told police that he felt the girls, and this is, he tells police that he felt the girls' necks for a pulse after they were found. So in case, you know, there was any evidence of his fingerprints or anything, you know, he, what? Okay. And then he also, oh my God, he's so dumb. He also makes comments about these like traces, this, the traces of bloody foam that were found around Nicola's lips that indicated that she'd been strangled. So, you know, two things here. One, he was never alone with the bodies. So he couldn't have felt her necks for a pulse, whatever, you know. Um, and he stayed so far back upon the discovery of the bodies that the detective at the scene knew there was no way he could have seen the bits of foam on Nicola's lips. Like, no way. The other prominent suspect in the murders was Nicola's own father, Barry. What? Yeah. So apparently Barry was so strongly disliked in the community at the time, at the time of the murders, that many wished he was the murderer. So he'd go to jail and get out of their lives. Whoa. 
so, you know, he's just, he's rough, he's gruff, and he just, he doesn't seem very nice. Um, he had, he also had some, like, petty criminal activity convictions for burglary, dealing in stolen goods. Um, he'd been to jail when he was younger. Um, Nicola's mother, Susan, who was Barry's wife at the time, said that, you know, he did occasionally slap his children, um, you know, but then they knew that what he said went. Um, and, okay, you know, I can, it was a different time then. But this, this, what I'm about to tell you, I had to read this a couple times because I couldn't believe it. But it's also said that at one point, Barry hit his grandmother, it's not funny at all, hit his grandmother-in-law in the face, breaking her nose. I don't even know how, I don't know how, how that even happens. I don't know how you punch an old lady in the face. I mean... I don't know. Um, however, he said it was an accident. Okay. I don't know how that accidentally happens, breaking someone's nose, but it was an accident. Sure. Fine. Whatever. She didn't press charges. You know, they moved on. Uh, that being said, um, Susan also said though, that Nicola and her father loved one another very much. Um, I don't know if Barry was abusive to Susan as, as well, or, you know, if anything, um, I'm kind of on the fence about whether she feared her husband or not, which is also something that's going to come up later. Um, you know, like I said, this case is hella long, but I'm kind of leaning towards she feared him, but I don't know. So a little bit more also about Barry. In 1984, he called a public meeting and I was like trying to find more about this and I couldn't. So I was bummed. But he called a public meeting to explain why he was showing and promoting pornographic videos. Okay, so like I said, I couldn't find anything specific about this incident, but apparently, you know, he held this meeting and it seemed to just be something common, like in the area, sharing pornographic videos among friends, as I guess you did before the Internet, you know, um, nothing against pornography, but you know, share with your buddy, go ahead. But my guess is that perhaps Barry like might have been charging people. I'm a, that's my guess, maybe charging people to watch these videos like in his home or other places. And that's why he had to call this meeting. But remember earlier that like Russell was involved in this as well. So, you know, don't tell me that Barry wasn't watching, you know, 16 year olds, you know, doing what they do in porno movies. Another uh, reason that people looked at Barry a little suspiciously was that he did not participate in the initial search of his daughter choosing to eat dinner instead. Um, but his explanation was that she'd been late before and that she would turn up. Um, also around the time of the murders, the time they estimated, the police estimated the murders happened, Barry wasn't at home, uh, but he later said that he was at a friend's house and he never changed his story. Um, in his defense, witnesses say that when he learned of his daughter's death, he was inconsolable. Um, he was the person to go to the coroner and identify the body and where he broke down again. And um, I guess he asked the coroner if he was allowed to give his little girl, you know, Nicola, like some pocket money. Like he slipped her like a little 50 cent piece um, kind of as, you know, a last offering from her daddy, which, you know, if he wasn't, um, you know, a suspect in a murder and a creep, then, you know, that would be really adorable. Uh, but if he is, then, you know, it's like, oh, is that hush money? I don't know. I'm choosing to believe that it was just a sweet, like, gesture, gesture, you know, like, here's, you know, daddy's giving me some money to go, you know, go to the shop or whatever. Um, anyway, I'm talking about that way too long. Um, so take it however you want. 
but Karen's mother, Michelle, she was also suspicious of Barry herself at the time for a few reasons. Um, one, she didn't like the people that Barry hung out with. And, you know, he had some, he also said some strange things to her, such as that Karen was at the wrong place at the wrong time on a few occasions, like more than once he said that. Um, he also said that Karen was lucky that she hadn't been beaten before she was murdered, like Nicola was. And uh, also the night that the girls went missing, uh, Michelle saw him, saw Barry outside around 1145, and he didn't seem too concerned. He was like chill. And, you know, he just put his hand on her shoulder, told her, you know, police are doing what they can. And, uh, yeah, said she should just do what he was going to do, which was just try and get a good night's sleep. Um, however, later, Michelle changed her mind. And while she didn't think very highly of Barry, um, she didn't think he was guilty of murdering their girls either. So while police are questioning potential suspects, some other things are going on. One, Marion Stevenson, Russell's 16-year-old girlfriend, she breaks up with him and gives a statement to police that when she was discussing how awful the murders of these two little girls were with him, Russell said, quote, they deserved it, and I blame the parents for allowing them out at night. Yeah, he also told her that after seeing the bodies of the two girls, that they, quote, they looked so lovely lying there. Okay. The other thing that's happening is that there is a new piece of evidence that pops up. Yeah. So, ha, huh, found along what would be the natural route from the park to Russell's home was a light blue blood-stained Pinto brand sweatshirt. Uh-huh. On the route home. And remember from earlier, witnesses had said that Russell was wearing, huh, a light blue shirt, Russell, you dummy. You don't just take the evidence off your body and toss it in the woods or on the ground. You take it home and burn it. Nobody burns anything anymore. They just, like, they discard shit left and right. And it's like, no, people are going to find it. What the hell's the matter with you? Anyhow, so police they have the sweatshirt right and they head over to russell's house with the sweatshirt to see his live-in partner jennifer jennifer right away is like oh you brought russell's sweatshirt back right so police now they think okay it's it's his we got him and they arrest russell who vehemently denies killing the girls saying no no it's not me fuck off leave it out so the trial begins and it's a freaking mess from the start okay so first, Jennifer, yeah, Jennifer changes her story on the stand and blatantly lies about this freaking blue sweatshirt that's Russell's. Says she's never seen it before, denies that the sweatshirt is Russell's. Um, she ends up blaming what she says is her poor eyesight for the mistake. Mm, yeah. And then um, she says that while she did sign a statement verifying that the sweatshirt was Russell's, she did it only to get back at him for his affair with Marion. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, kind of a big revenge tactic for an affair, you know, framing someone for murder, but whatever. Um, yeah, I'm curious as to how Jennifer was able to get away with this at this time, but I really couldn't find any more information about it. So. Either way, on the stand, freaking Jenna, she lied like a rug. Um, but also, it didn't help that the sweatshirt was not completely properly preserved. 
So that caused some of the evidence to be lost and what evidence would be found to be like inconclusive. Um, now, DNA forensic testing and use in court cases is literally like brand new at this time. OK, and I'm, I'm not wording what I'm trying to say properly, but I think you know what I mean. Um, it was first used in casework for the first time in England in 1984 and then in the U.S. in 1985, excuse me, 85. So they just didn't have the advanced technology during the 1987 trial that we have today. Um, also, the forensics team. Ugh, come on, guys and gals, whoever you are. The forensics team, they didn't record the body temperatures of the girls upon discovery, so they couldn't determine the time of death. Um, measurements were not taken of the strangulation marks or fingerprints around the girls' necks. Um, there was also, sorry, cover your ears if you're highly sensitive, but, you know, there was also uh, blood on Karen's underwear that was not analyzed. Um, none of the other suspects' clothing was tested for evidence. And then there were also used condoms found near the crime scene because, you know, I guess people like to bang in the park, right? Um, yeah, so there's these condoms lying all around, and they weren't properly examined. I mean, this is like a lot of mistakes, you guys, right? Yeah, it is. So then also the prosecution was saying that they believed that the girls were killed between um, 5.15 and 6.30, but witnesses said that they saw the girls alive at 630 and also saw Russell leaving Wild Park at 632. So because of all of the inconsistencies and the fact that Russell never confessed, the judge, um, Justice Scheiman, 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 I think his name is Conrad Scheiman with a K, but I couldn't verify it. I couldn't find his first name in like any of the articles I looked at. Um, Anyhow, whatever. He advised the jury on a few things. One was that they were sure that the girls were killed by 630. The other was that they were sure that Russell had been wearing a blue Pinto brand sweatshirt the night of the murder. And finally, that the sweatshirt in question was 100% worn, was 100% sure that it was worn by the murderer. And in the case that the jury was like not sure of all these things, he advised them to acquit Russell. Which, I mean, I hate to say it, but I, I think he was right. That was probably the right thing to do. Um, and after two hours of deliberation, the jury found Russell not guilty on both counts. So, you know, and, oh, brother, court goes wild, doesn't it? Court goes wild. Russell's family is cheering. His brother, one of his brothers, this guy, Alec, he's trying to jump over everybody to hug Russell. Russell is like a big man now, and he's yelling for everybody to keep it down and like pounding his fist. Um, security is holding Alec and uh, Russell's mother, Sylvia, she's like screaming and sobbing and carrying on and to the point that she also had to be restrained by a policewoman to whom she then shouts, if my husband has a heart attack, I'll kill you. So, you know, drama much, Sylvia, but whatever. So now Russell is, you know, he's a free man and he is relishing in his new role as a wrongly accused victim, okay? He's got to, like, pick up the pieces of his life and, like, start over. And, you know, he's giving interviews, like, left and right, you know, demanding that the real killer be caught, um, trying to come off like the hero. Uh, he's joining Nicholas and Karen's families, like, in protest marches and stuff. And, you know, he's just living it up because, you know, he's secure. And the fact that due to Britain's double jeopardy law, 
he cannot be tried again, right? Now, you might think that this is where our story would end, but alas, no, it's only beginning. So, stay with me here. Remember how I mentioned that there seemed to be evidence that Nicola was sexually assaulted previously, like a month before the day of her murder? Well, since the investigation is still going on after Russell's trial, um, it turns out that Marion, Russell's 16-year-old girlfriend, well, she claims that she told police in 1988 that one time when she was over at Nicola's house smoking pot with Russell, she heard sexual noises coming from another room and witnessed Barry Fellows, Nicola's dad, watching a pornographic videotape of Nicola being raped by their lodger, Dougie Judd. Hmm? So now I have no idea what really happened here um, or if Marion actually did report this info to the police, but I think that she did. Um, apparently something along this line had come up in the 1986 trial, but now like rumors are really swirling for sure. That is a fact, but no arrests to Barry or Dougie are made at this time. So back to Russell Things go quiet for Russell for a few years, but, you know, Russell's a murdering pervert dunny who likes to hurt little girls, remember? So, you know, and he can't stay out of trouble. So what does he do? Sick mother, you know. Yeah. On February 4th, 1990, Russell is at it again. This time he abducts a seven-year-old, seven, seven-year-old girl in the White Hawk neighborhood of Brighton who, God bless her, was roller skating down the damn street, okay? He grabs her, tells her, scream and I'll kill you, throws her in the trunk of his car, takes her 14 miles away to a wooded area known as Devil's Dyke, where he strangles her, then sexually assaults her, and leaves her for what he presumes is dead. But no, this little girl was not dead. Brave-ass little girl. She was not dead, and she mustered her strength to climb out of the woods and get help. Then, then, she identified Russell in a police lineup, and she even testified at the trial. Okay? Can you imagine? Brave kid. So, in this case, Russell, again, denying the crime and pleading not guilty, in this case, he is found guilty at this late 1990 trial, and he is sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 2004. That would be the first time, and he was denied, right? And he'd be denied a second time in the next few years. But, oh, also, you know, the entire time that he's serving this sentence um, for this crime, he is writing letter after letter saying that he's been framed, proclaiming his innocence, um, he regularly applies for parole and even tried to sue the Sussex police for wrongful imprisonment. So, you know, he's a busy boy. Okay. Busy boy. Oh, there was just something on my computer went off. Sorry about that noise, right? Okay. So, you know, Russell's in jail, right? He's finally behind bars, at least for a while. But it's kind of bittersweet, you know. There's, there's still no justice for Nicola and Karen, it's not going to bring them back. And then also these rumors are continuing to swirl about a possible pornographic tape involving Nicola and Dougie Judd allegedly viewed by her father. So now people are thinking like, well, shit, maybe did Barry kill Nicola to keep her quiet? And Karen was, in fact, just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, 
more more things on the timeline here. More things on the timeline. Things are things keep moving. So in 2005, remember that double jeopardy law? New legislation in 2005 changes the double jeopardy law, stating that accused criminals could, in fact, be tried again for a crime if new evidence was presented. Okay, but then in 2020, excuse me, 2006, there was a court ruling that there was not enough evidence, not enough new evidence for Russell to be tried again for the murders of Nicola and Karen. Okay, so now we're going back to the videotape again. In 2007, Marion, Russell's ex-girlfriend, says that she talks to police again about this supposed pornographic tape involving the rape of Nicola by Dougie Judd. And then in 2009, Barry, Nicola's father, as well as Dougie, are both arrested. Huh? Oh, my God. Okay. So it's like it's this freaking sweatshirt and this tape and this. Oh, Jesus. So Barry gets arrested on suspicion of rape and conspiracy, conspiracy to rape and Dougie on suspicion of sexual offenses. However, the police thoroughly investigate and they cannot find any evidence of any of this occurring rapes, the tape, nothing. So, you know, again, no charges are brought against either man and they're both released. So, you know, Christ on cream chip beef, will this story ever end? You know, the answer is yes, we're almost there. All right, we're almost there. And you know what? I'm going to give it to the Sussex police. I'm going to give them this. At least they never gave up, right? All right. So now, in 2014, senior scientific advisor Roy Green at Eurofins Forensic Services was asked to re-examine the evidence in Nicholas and Karen's case. He was sent 104 microscope slides, microscope slides, microscope slides, yes, of fibers collected from when the girls had died, right? So you got to love modern technology, huh? They just didn't have the tools back in 1987, huh? So Roy, God bless you, Roy, you smarty two-shoes, he ends up finding links on that God-blessed blue pinto sweatshirt to Russell's home and both girls' clothing. Also, from a taping from Karen's forearm, it was found to have Russell's DNA, and Roy was able to recover a billion-to-one DNA match linking Russell to that damn sweatshirt. All right? So ding, 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 give Roy all the prizes. So now, and I just don't know why everything takes so long, because it's like, this is in 2014. Now, in May of 2016, 30 years later, Russell is taken out of his prison cell, taken down to the local police station, where he was again arrested for the murders of Karen and Nicola, with his trial set to begin October 15th, 2018. So now this trial is like a little weirder than the last one. Okay, it's it's not as messed up, but it's a little strange. So and it brought back some of the old players in the case. Um Literally, like old witnesses for the defense in the 1986 trial were now brought in. They're brought back as prosecution witnesses for this 2018 trial. And a new timeline is presented with evidence um, showing that the girls were, in fact, alive at 630. But it works in their favor this time. It works in the prosecution's favor. Um, 
Also, Nicola's parents, Barry and Susan, uh, they are at the trial as well. They're now divorced and remarried to other people, um, as well as Karen's mother and, uh, and Karen's siblings. They're at the trial as well. Um, however, Barry, he's not there as a spectator this time. He's taken the stand and defending himself. Um, also, sadly, uh, Nicola's brother, Jonathan, apparently he could never cope with the loss of his sister. He, you know, the awful way that she died. He turned to drugs and he passed away from an overdose just a few weeks before the trial began, um, despite really looking forward to it. And Karen's father, Lee, passed away in 1998 from what everyone just said was a broken heart. So over the loss of, of his little baby girl. So again, during this trial, Russell denies killing Karen and Nicola. But this time, his defense brings up – now, wait. When I was doing my research, I thought that this was the first time that this happened. It's not. It's actually the second time because it was mentioned in the old 86 trial. But again, then, okay, this alleged pornographic tape that depicted Nicola being raped by Dougie Judd um, is brought up again. And they're basically, you know, the defense is trying to put Barry and Dougie on trial to cause doubt. So this has not helped when Marion Stevenson, she's still around. She comes back, she takes the sand, and she testifies that she did indeed, 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 see that tape with her own eyes. And she reported it to the police in 1988 and 2007. She also testifies that she had witnessed Russell beat his pregnant partner, Jennifer, like punch, kick, I mean, beat the crap out of Jennifer on several occasions when they were dating. Okay. And this is going to come up. Beating Jennifer is going to come up again in a bit as well. Okay. Also, what kind of piece of trash not only has the nerve not only the nerve to beat a woman, now you're going to beat up on your pregnant woman, right? And you're going to beat her in front of the person that you're cheating on her with. Whoa. Okay. Wow. So anyway, Barry and Dougie both take the stand and vehemently deny that such a tape ever existed or that either of them had ever sexually abused Nicola. Now, at this point, Barry's an old man and he's actually softened quite a bit, quite a bit. He tearfully denies any wrongdoing against Nicola or Karen and says that he's been used as a scapegoat for the last 30 years. Also, Nicola's mother, Susan, so my bad, she was there. She took the stand as well. I had said she was there as a spectator. Um, wrong. Um, she takes a stand as well. But this is where I couldn't tell, like, if she'd been fearful back in the day of her now ex-husband or not. My instinct says yes, but... Um, the reason I'm questioning it is because she testifies that she heard about this supposed tape back in 1998, but she never asked Barry about it. She said she wouldn't dare, okay? So my first thought was that she'd have been too afraid to ask him, but then I thought, you know, maybe she never asked him because she couldn't think that he'd ever do anything like that, you know, like cross that line. So at the time of this trial, they are both happily remarried to other people. And she did not blame Barry for their divorce, nothing. Um, you know, and again, she had said that Nicola and her father absolutely adored one another. And I didn't get any kind of creep vibe from her statement, okay? But then also, why would Marion lie? She had completely moved on with her life as well, right? Unless she lied in the beginning to protect Russell, and then she just didn't want to come across as a liar, so she just stuck with her story. But I don't know, you know? Also... Um, in Barry's defense uh, and Dougie's defense, 
During this trial, a new pathologist re-examines the autopsies, and he said he finds no evidence that Nicola had been sexually assaulted previously before the evening of her murder. So, you know, I have my own opinions about who is telling the truth here, but I'm not about to accuse anyone of, you know, lying publicly. Neither Marion, Dougie, you know, or Barry were on trial here, and only they know who's telling the truth. So, you know, maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. Who knows? <sighs> Almost done. Now, Russell, he does something completely unexpected, okay? So though he still denies his involvement in the rape and murders of Nicola and Karen, he does, for the first time, admit to the strangulation, rape, and attempted murder of the seven-year-old girl in 1990. Little Jane Doe. Huh? What? Yeah. On the stand, Russell says that he was driven. He, was, he's, he says he's deeply ashamed, okay? Shut up, Russell. Shut up. All right? says he's deeply ashamed of what he did and that he was driven to attack and attack and attempt to murder the little girl because, wait for it, it was an act of revenge for being accused of the murders and rapes of Nicola and Karen. Really, Russell? Okay. He said he wanted to belittle and shame her because he was bloody angry at what he considered a hate campaign against him and figured, ha, I might as well do it. Okay. All right. You know, I'm thinking of an example here. Like maybe, you know, you're a teenager. Your parents accuse you of sneaking out when you haven't. So then, you know, one night you do sneak out because you're like, yeah, I'm already in trouble anyway. Right. You know, or maybe that was just me. But, um, yeah, being accused of rape and murder. So I just figured, well, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. You know, I don't know. It doesn't really work that way. It's not apples and oranges here, Russell, you crazy creep. So then... He uh, denies, oh, this was another thing, right? So they start questioning him about being a pedophile. He gets real defensive, real defensive, um, asks if the line of questioning is, like, even legal. Um, he denies being a pedophile then because he, his response that he's not a pedophile is because he said the pedophiles don't believe that what they're doing is wrong, you know, and he knew what he was doing was wrong, so he's not a pedophile. Okay, yeah. Also, it comes out that um, in 1997, Russell was corresponding with a 13-year-old girl via mail from prison. But, you know, that's a whole other story. I don't know where this girl's parents were, how that happened. But, you know, whatever. Sure. Okay. You're not a pedophile, Russell. Got it. So at the end of the day, all of the evidence points directly to Russell in the rapes and murders of Nicholas Hollows and Karen Hathaway. And on December 10th, 2018, 32 years after these awful crimes were committed, and after two hours, again, two hours of deliberation by a jury of seven men and five women, Russell was finally found guilty in the Babes in the Woods case, and he received two additional life sentences, serving a minimum of 36 years, though putting that on top of his other life sentence, I'd say the streets are safe from Russell Bishop for the rest of his lifetime. Um, the investigation into this case is the largest and longest running inquiry ever conducted by the Sussex police. You know, and while it doesn't bring Nicola and Karen back, I hope that it does provide some comfort to their families. Though I imagine that's impossible. You know, I don't know. I'm a parent. Man, this is rough. Um, Susan, Nicola's mother, says that she often talks to photos of her daughter, you know, to this day. You know, asking her what she would be if she were still alive. Would she have children of her own? Would she be happy? Uh, Karen's mother, Michelle, said that what people like Bishop inflict on the families of their victims 
is a living death. And I don't think I've ever heard a more accurate statement. So again, now you might think that we're finished here, but we're not, but we're so close. Two more quick things, okay? One, that little seven-year-old girl whom Russell, piece of garbage, whatever bishop, sexually assaulted and tried to murder, the one who bravely faced him in court and testified against him, well, she is alive and well today, and though she has definitely struggled because of these horrible crimes that she survived through, according to her parents, she is really feeling a lot better, you know, and, and getting closer to her healing now that she knows that Russell has at least admitted what he's done to her. So despite his poor made-up excuses for his actions, you know, I'm guessing she at least maybe feels validated, you know. So she she is feeling better. She, uh, you know, her father, I read an interview, you know, her father talked to her. She called him as soon as she heard. And, you know, I think it really helped to put her mind at ease a little bit. And, you know, God bless her. I wish her the absolute best in her continued healing. The last thing we're going to mention is, yeah, remember when uh, Jen A., Jennifer Johnson, Russell's live-in partner and mother of his children, when she lied on the stand about the mother of Pearl, god-awful, I'm sick of talking about it, blue Pinto brand sweatshirt? Yeah, well, the police remember, too, okay? So in March of 2020, Jennifer Johnson is charged with perjury and perverting the course of justice, okay? She is said to be pleading not guilty and claims that she was under duress at the time. And her trial is currently taking place, but the process is moving slowly because, you know, COVID. And, you know, I don't know how I feel about this. You know, I, I guess I do. But here's the thing. I have no doubt that she was afraid of Russell. Even, you know, as even her rival in their relationship testified that Russell beat Jennifer in front of Marion. But then also, come on, like our Jane Doe, seven-year-old victim. You know, she might never have been a victim had Jennifer not changed her story. So, you know, I don't know anything about this woman. I'm not inside her head. Maybe she feels guilty after all of these years, or maybe she doesn't. You know, it's an awful position to be in. Um, so I'm I'm going to try again, again, try not to judge. Um, I wasn't there. So I guess the courts will decide, and, and we'll just see. So I guess that all that matters, really, is that Russell Bishop is finally, you know, he's behind bars for good. Um there's so many moving parts to this case. And, you know, funny enough, I do, I do feel that Nicola was failed by the adults in her life, at least by the company that was kept in her home. And that, you know, Karen, Karen was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, so yeah, I hope that you enjoyed my retelling of the babes in the wood murder case. And thank you so much for listening. Um, and thank you to murder under the midnight sun for asking me to contribute to this special episode. Uh, I hope I, I didn't bore you to tears, and um, I hope you all stay safe, keep it creepy, and happy, happy, happy Halloween. I thought that was a really interesting story and so well told. And I was very surprised I had never actually heard of it before, since it was obviously a huge investigation. And I personally listened to a lot of UK-based true crime podcasts as I'm sure many of you do as well. So as I said before, I really think Lisa should start a podcast and hopefully she'll get around to that someday when she's not busy being a writer and filmmaker. I wanted to mention that she also wrote a short horror film called Everything's Fine, 
which is about a woman that's suffering from postpartum issues who may or may not have killed her baby. It sounds very dark, as many horror movies are, but if you would like to check it out, I've actually posted a link in the show notes. So click on over to YouTube and give her movie a, a watch. I was about to say listen. Anyways, thank you so much, Lisa. That was such a great submission. I'm amazed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And speaking of the UK, my next submission is from my friend Hayes Selby D, who is in the UK and does not currently have a podcast, but will be releasing a podcast very soon. And as you can tell, she has a lovely speaking voice, so I look forward to checking that out. So let's check out her story about a very strange Halloween crime. Hello, I'm Hayes, host of the soon-to-be-released True Crime podcast, Podcast She Wrote, and this is the story of 55-year-old Liddell Peoples, the man who had his bag of Halloween candy stolen, and his 48-year-old friend Maria Adams, the woman who paid the ultimate price for the theft. Peoples and Adams met in 2007 and had an understanding whereby Peoples would occasionally give Adams money and gifts in return for sexual intercourse. This relationship suited them both, and for four years the friends lived a relatively happy existence. It was the afternoon of the 31st of October 2011 when Peoples, an ordained minister, called 911 and requested the police visit his house on South Winchester Avenue in the West Englewood neighbourhood on the south side of Chicago. Chicago police officer John Davidson attended the scene and later told the court that the defendant was standing on the front porch and seemed calm. Officer Davison asked Peoples what was going on and was told, That bitch is crazy. She threw a plate at my head. Inside, paramedics found Adams unconscious and bleeding from several stab wounds, apparently caused by the bloody steak knives that were soaking in the kitchen sink. Peoples immediately confessed to stabbing Adams, but cited self-defence. Provocation? Yes, Peoples thought Adams had stolen his Halloween candy and had accused her of such. When she denied taking his stash, Peoples searched her pockets where he found the missing goodies. Enraged, Peoples and Adams began arguing, with Peoples suddenly realising he had had several items go missing in the past, often after Adams had stayed over. Adams was not happy at being called a thief and began hurling plates at her accuser. One of the plates made contact with Peoples' forehead leaving a bleeding gash above his right eye. It was at this point that Peoples grabbed the steak knives, one in each hand, and repeatedly stabbed Adams over 20 times until she was unresponsive. At trial, it was reported that most of the wounds were inflicted when Adams was on the ground and unable to defend herself or fight back. Adams also suffered blunt force trauma after Peoples, six foot one inch tall, weighing over 200 pounds, either stomped on or slammed her head against the hard floor. Self-defense indeed. Adams was rushed to John H. Stroger Jr. Hospital of Cook County in critical condition where medical staff fought to save her life, but sadly her injuries were too severe. She had lost too much blood 
and died just a few days later on the 5th of November 2011. People's initial charge of attempted first-degree murder and aggravated domestic battery would be upgraded to first-degree murder after the autopsy. Dr Ariel Goldschmidt, assistant medical examiner, performed Adam's autopsy, which revealed over 28 wounds about her body, 10 stab wounds to the scalp, hands and forearms, 18 incise wounds to the face and multiple superficial incise wounds to the face, hands and arms. Ms Adams sustained hemorrhaging to the brain and injuries to the underside of her scalp. These injuries were consistent with being stabbed or stomped on the head. Cause of death was brain cerebral edema and brain defect due to stab wounds. The manner of death was without doubt homicide. Peoples was held over on a $2 million bond and was found guilty at a jury trial. He was sentenced to 30 years incarceration and immediately appealed. Peoples stood by his plea of self-defence and did not wish to seek a diminished capacity defence. However, a psych evaluation by a Dr Hanlon in May 2013 noted that Peoples suffered from schizoaffective disorder, paranoid schizophrenia, cognitive disorder and cocaine abuse but was fit to stand trial with medication. This was not brought up in the original trial, but Peoples felt it was relevant to explain his mental state at the time of the attack. His insistence that the charge be reduced to second-degree murder due to the level of provocation and his acting only in self-defence was dismissed and the 30-year sentence remained. The court noted that it was a very violent offence and the death of Miss Adams certainly was out there as one of the most senseless, ridiculous reasons, i.e. a dispute over candy. Liddell Peoples, prisoner number B64987, is currently incarcerated at the Western Illinois Correctional Centre and will be eligible for parole on the 4th of October 2041, just in time for Halloween. Stay away from his candy, folks. Sadly, I could find very little about Maria Adams, her life, family or achievements. But what a completely senseless attack resulting in a death aged just 48 over a petty theft. I don't know about you, but this Halloween... COVID permitting, I think I'll be giving out a few extra bags of candy in her memory. Rest in peace, Maria. What a very interesting story and what an extremely crazy motive for such a violent crime. Honestly, I could listen to Hayes talk all day. She has such a soothing voice. So I hope that you make a note of her upcoming podcast so that you can check it out when it drops. I'm definitely going to do so. The next submission is from the wonderful and lovely Robin Warder, one of the longest running true crime hosts out there. He hosts The Trail Went Cold, which is an unsolved mysteries true crime podcast. And if you don't listen, you should definitely check it out. And he has been so wonderful about submitting to my various collaborative episodes over the years. He's just such a reliable and super nice guy. So definitely check out his podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. And for the special Halloween episode, I've got a creepy unsolved murder, which actually took place on Halloween nearly 40 years ago. Way back in 2014, before my podcasting days, I published an article for listfirst.com titled 10 Creepy Unsolved Mysteries That Happened on Halloween, and while digging up cases to feature on the list, 
I learned about a crime which I'm surprised is not more well known, given that it has a connection to one of the most infamous serial killers of all time, David Berkowitz, a.k.a. Son of Sam. I'm sure most of you already know his story, but from the summer of 1976 until 1977, New York City was terrorized by a series of crimes known as the Son of Sam murders, as a total of six people were shot to death and seven others were seriously wounded. The perpetrator was eventually identified as David Berkowitz, who would receive six life sentences for his crimes, but the case has always been surrounded by conspiracy theories about how Berkowitz was supposedly a member of a satanic cult which orchestrated the Son of Sam murders, and that he did not commit all the shootings alone. If you're a fan of the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, you've probably watched the creepy two-part segment which explored that theory. By 1981, Berkowitz was already locked up, but on Halloween night that year, the New York City Police Department was summoned to a third-floor duplex apartment in the Chelsea section of Manhattan near Greenwich Village, where two people had been brutally murdered. The apartment belonged to one of the victims, a 39-year-old freelance photographer named Ronald Sisman, and the second victim was his 20-year-old girlfriend Elizabeth Platzman, who was a student at Smith College in Massachusetts. The couple had started dating several weeks earlier, but they were both severely beaten before Sisson was shot four times and Platzman shot three times. They each received one execution-style shot to the back of their heads, but no witnesses reported hearing or seeing anything unusual. Police suspected that at least two killers were involved, and since there were no signs of forced entry, they believed that the victims might have willingly let the killers inside the apartment before they were attacked. The place had also been ransacked, but it was unclear if anything was actually stolen. However, since Sisman's neighbors believed that he sold drugs from his apartment in order to supplement his income, investigators wondered if that might have been the motive for the crime. But the investigation went in a completely different direction when an inmate at the Attica Correctional Facility came forward and implicated none other than Son of Sam himself, David Berkowitz. According to the inmate, a few weeks before Sisman and Platzman were killed, Berkowitz had told him that the satanic cult he was associated with was planning a ritualistic murder which would take place in or near Greenwich Village on October the 31st. Berkowitz allegedly described it as a quote-unquote inside house-cleaning thing and said that a male and female would get their heads shot off before evidence was removed from the scene. Of course, this fit the description of the sisman platzman murders and when questioned about this, Berkowitz claimed that Sisman possessed an actual snuff film from one of the Son of Sam shootings. Since Sisman was facing his own legal problems over potential drug charges, he was planning to turn the snuff film over to the authorities in exchange for immunity. However, the film was recovered by the killers after Sisman and Platzman were murdered, and Berkowitz apparently provided an accurate description of the apartment to suggest he might have had inside knowledge of the crime. Well, in the end, no evidence was ever found to corroborate Berkowitz's story, and over the years, many experts have debunked his claims that he was a member of a satanic cult. Indeed, there are a lot of unanswered questions here, such as how Ronald Sisman would have obtained a copy of this so-called snuff film to begin with. But even if Berkowitz is completely full of it, that still doesn't answer the question of who actually did commit these murders. It's possible that the authorities are correct, and that the crime was drug-related, but one year beforehand, 
Sisman found himself embroiled in a minor scandal involving actress Melanie Holler, who had starred in the popular sitcom Welcome Back, Cotter. Holler knew Sisman because he had photographed her, and the actress wound up making headlines in 1980 when she accused producer Roy Radin of drugging, beating, and raping her during a party at his home. While Holler also accused Sisman of drugging her when she visited his apartment three days after that incident, but Sisman maintained that he only gave her a legally prescribed tranquilizer to calm her down because she was hysterical. In the end, Holler decided not to press charges against Sisman, and while it's unclear if this had any connection to the murders, it's worth mentioning that Roy Radin would also be murdered in a contract hit in 1983 while producing the Francis Ford Coppola-directed film, The Cotton Club. No less than four people were indicted for their role in Radin's murder, and David Berkowitz once claimed that the man behind this contract hit, William Menser, was a member of his cult and went by the nickname Manson II. So, we have ourselves an unsolved double murder which took place on Halloween night, and it has tentative connections to Son of Sam, Welcome Back Cotter, and a contract hit on a Hollywood producer. For all we know, all of these angles might be nothing more than giant red herrings, but until we know the full truth, the murders of Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman will continue to remain one of the most bizarre unsolved Halloween crimes in history. Anyway, thanks to Ari for inviting me to participate in this special episode, and everyone have yourselves a happy Halloween. So many thanks to Robin for his submission and for all of the times that he has sent me great stories for collaborative episodes in the past. And the last submission for this episode is from another podcast that have been longtime friends and have submitted to many other shows of mine in the past. They are the Forgotten News Podcast. If you haven't checked them out, you should definitely give them a listen right after you're done listening to this episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim. My name is Kit Karen. My name is Jessica. We host the Forgotten News Podcast. But right now... We would like to thank Ariel for inviting us to join you on the Halloween episode of your podcast, Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Hey, I thought Halloween was canceled. Not possible. Because Halloween is more than just a date on the calendar. It's more than candy. It's more than costumes. It's a state of mind. So prepare yourselves because we are going to bring it. Errol asked if we might happen to have a spooky October true crime story to share with our listeners. And guess what? We, we do. <laughs> but... Since our show is a history podcast, we will be telling you more than simply a true crime story that happened in October. Our story revolves around an incident 
that actually occurred on Halloween night approximately 150 years ago. The story will be narrated by our mysterious co-host, Jessica Malone. Our story begins early in the year 1878 in Boston, Massachusetts. The warden of the state prison had been summoned to appear at a meeting of the governor and his cabinet in regard to a petition for the pardon of a prisoner which they were then considering. Warden Samuel Chamberlain was a former U.S. Army officer who had fought on the front lines during the four years of the American Civil War, including as a heroic commander of African-American troops on the battlefield. In fact, during the war, he had suffered a total of six different wounds in various battles with the enemy. In the year 1865, Chamberlain had risen to the rank of Brevet Brigadier General and was mustered out of the army later that same year when the war finally ended. Yet despite all of these many achievements, Chamberlain would later refer to this meeting at the Massachusetts State House as, quote, one of the most remarkable experiences of my life, unquote. A petition for a pardon had been submitted by friends of a convict who had become known as the Dumb Prisoner. The inmate was Michael O'Donnell, who had been sentenced for the murder of a young girl. He had served 10 years thus far. The governor asked the warden to bring O'Donnell inside from the hallway where he had been told to wait. Mr. Haynes, who was a member of the governor's cabinet, later described the events which then took place. And this is what he said. We saw Michael O'Donnell in the morning for a minute or two, and that brief interview has haunted me. Warden Chamberlain had told Mr. O'Donnell to come into the room. Then, shortly after that, a tall man walked in wearing a prison uniform. But his appearance and manner were so strange that for a few minutes, none of us were able to speak. We just sat and looked at the man in amazement. His hair was perfectly white and soft, but there was an expression on his face that was simply terrible. He looked like a man who had been struck dumb with fright. There was absolutely no expression on his face. Absolutely none, except fear. He walked like a man who was made out of stone. We asked him a few questions, and he simply answered yes or no. His eyes never flickered. He did not move even a single muscle. The sight of him became so painful to all of us that we sent him away. We then asked the warden about him, and he then told us his story. Michael O'Donnell had been a very poor man, an immigrant from Ireland, who had moved to this country and prospered. He had lived in a nearby town and had a small piece of land in which he grew and raised vegetables, but they were often stolen while he slept. One night he heard someone in the garden. He assumed it was somebody trying to steal from him again, 
So he went out and stood on his doorstep. It was a very dark night and he could see nothing at all. He decided to randomly fire a shot from his gun, which he then did in the hope that the loud noise would scare the thief to leave. So he then went back into his house and went to bed. The next morning, the body of a small girl, only 15 years of age, was found lying in his garden. She had been killed by the gunshot that O'Donnell had fired. The gunshot that he thought he was just firing at nothing. The girl had been discovered by a police officer who just happened to be walking down the street and glanced in the direction of the garden. O'Donnell was immediately arrested. However, from the moment of his arrest, he acted like a man from whom every emotion and every feeling had evaporated. A permanently vacant and sorrowful expression came into his face. He was put on trial, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. During the week of the trial, his hair turned white. He was taken to the prison. And, for ten years, his manner has been unchanged. He does the work that he is told to do, but almost as if he were a mechanical man. He obeys the prison regulations, but he never speaks except to answer yes or no. The petition for his pardon did not come from him. He did not even know about it until the warden brought him to us. And even when we informed him that his chance for a pardon was good, his manner did not change, nor did the emptiness of his eyes and face. Evidently, during his trial, the prosecution had convinced the jury that O'Donnell had seen the girl and knew who she was, then maliciously hatefully, shot and killed her. But, during the previous month, it had been learned that this allegation was not true and that Michael O'Donnell, in fact, had not acted with malice or intent. And, that he not only did not know the girl, he did not even know she was there. The recent revelation of these facts had prompted the petition for pardon filed on his behalf. It was discovered that on the night of the incident, what had actually happened was a very strange chain of events. It was Halloween night. And at the time, there was a belief, a superstition, which had long been widespread among girls in Massachusetts, that if a virgin walks through a graveyard, then steals a cabbage, and places it above the front door to her house on that night, then the first unmarried man who walks through the door with the cabbage above it is destined to be her husband. Now, listeners... I'm going to interrupt the story for a moment just to say a little something at this point. Although it is easy to think of this quote-unquote belief as silly or ridiculous, but here is the thing that you need to know before you immediately jump to any conclusions. It is natural to believe in the supernatural. It is unnatural to believe only 
in the natural. Okay, listeners? Is that reasonable? Anyway, just keep that in mind. Now, back to the story. It was nighttime, October 31st. The girl had gone to the garden of Mr. O'Donnell to try and find a cabbage for her door. Earlier that day, one of her girlfriends had told her about the garden and that it had cabbages. So in other words, the girl had never been there before. These facts disproved the allegation that the fatal shot had been fired maliciously or intentionally. So, after careful consideration of the petition and the evidence, Mr. O'Donnell was granted a pardon by the governor. However, it was the very sad opinion of Warden Chamberlain that it was highly unlikely that Mr. O'Donnell would probably never grant a pardon to himself. And that is the end of the terribly tragic story of the dumb prisoner, Michael O'Donnell. Well, Ariel, and all listeners to this podcast, we hope that you enjoyed the story, even though it might have been a little unsettling. It was a very weird story. Well, one more thing that might be interesting for the listeners to know in the context of the story is that Halloween in the 19th century in the United States was very, very different than it is in the present day. If you look at newspapers from throughout that time period, you will quickly learn that Halloween was a night for pranks and practical jokes. These were usually committed by children of all ages, but sometimes also by adults. And this type of random mischief was just taken for granted in almost every city, town, and village as a thing to expect. The targets of these pranks were often the houses or other property of neighbors. Most typically, a neighbor who was considered to be mean, annoying, or a troublemaker. It was very rare for a nice person to be the target. Unfortunately, the pranks would often get out of hand and the local police or fire department would be kept busy on Halloween or the day after. The ritual mentioned in the story that required a teenage girl to steal a cabbage at night sounds like it might have been a girlish offshoot of the custom of Halloween pranks. So, it might be a good idea to keep all of these things in mind when thinking about the story of Michael O'Donnell. By the way, the more recent tradition of trick-or-treating on Halloween did not begin until the 1920s. There are several towns in the U.S. and Canada that claim to be the place that invented trick-or-treating, but no matter where it actually started, it was a clever idea that quickly spread across the U.S. as a way to minimize or outright eliminate Halloween pranks. A person or family that desired to avoid property damage, booby traps, or physical injury 
could do so by simply paying a small bribe in the form of a piece of candy to any child who came to your doorstep on Halloween night. So, if you didn't know any of that before, well, you know it now. <laughs> and, on that note, we will now wrap up by simply saying, we hope you enjoyed our story and our little history lesson. And speaking of hope, we hope that all of you are social distancing, wearing a mask, and washing your hands on a regular basis. But if you aren't, what is wrong with you? Stay safe and you'll stay alive. Now, just one more thing before we go. If you are someone who likes obscure, strange, or unusual stories from history, be sure to check out our show, The Forgotten News Podcast. I think you'll like it. And now, with that being said, goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Happy, Happy Halloween. Halloween! Boo! Thank you so much to the Forgotten News podcast and everyone else who submitted. You guys made this episode possible, and I really appreciate it because I was definitely not on the ball this month to really get much out there. But I do have... I have my cat is literally climbing on my head as I'm recording this. But I do have the next episode about half written, so hopefully that'll come out sometime in the next few weeks. But until then, I hope you all have a good Halloween. Um, I mean, most of us are probably staying inside and doing not much because of the whole global pandemic and people, especially Americans, making bad choices and spreading the pandemic. But I don't need to go off on a rant about that right now. So eat lots of candy. Watch lots of scary movies and see ya for Thanksgiving month starting tomorrow. Thanks, guys. Good night. <laughs>